huh? 50 degrees? Seriously. Kathy and I come and you guys are all telling us, oh, it's going to be so cold. Whatever. It's almost summer. It's January already. (laughs) It's almost February. Surely winter's done now. My goodness. (laughs) I I put my coat in a box and put it on the shelf. I'm not going to need that again the rest of the year. (laughs) Oh, praise the Lord. Well, if you got your Bibles with you tonight, let's open up to Isaiah as we continue going through probably some of the most prolific uh, prophecies in Scripture. You'll remember last week we, we uh, went through chapter 7 to about verse 14. Remember verse 14, it's a, it's a sign. It's funny because the Lord says to Ahaz, Ahaz, remember, wicked king, bad guy, not doing well, doesn't really care about the Lord, but the Lord says, hey, uh, what do you want? Do you want something for me? And Ahaz is, plays that pseudo-spirituality. You know people who are pseudo-spiritual? You know, you talk to them and they always got the spiritual answer. And in, in somewhere in your spirit, you're going, whatever. Really? You expect me to, to buy that? That's what Ahaz was. He's not a believer. He didn't worship the Lord. He didn't care about the Lord. But when he was asked the right questions, he'd give his pseudo-spiritual answer. You know, oh, well, no, Lord. Of course, I don't want anything from you. So verse 14, the Lord's laying out for him. Hey, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name... Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now the, the scriptures tell us the meaning of Emmanuel, right? Tells us which means God with us. Literally, it's, it's with us God. Same difference. But the, the concept is that the Lord says, the Lord himself, capital L-O-R-D, right? The Lord himself, Yahweh, Yehovah, he will give you a sign. This is a work that God does. If this was just a woman having a baby, that's not much of a sign. Remember, we talked about that last time. But the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, who is that son? I mean, the only people that can confuse this, honestly, are Jehovah Witnesses. Because the son is Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 7, 14 says he is who? God with us, right? God, very God. Now, I don't have a problem, I've shared with you a couple of times, I don't have a problem with the Trinity because I don't feel like I have to understand everything that is about God. If God is outside of time and and is so big that he could speak and everything was, then I'm willing to accept the fact that there's things about God I'm not going to understand. But I can tell you what the Word says. We talked about it last, last week. The Word says the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. In, in 1 John chapter 5, it says these three agree. And depending on whether or not you want to argue about uh, 1 John 5, 7, or 8, it says these three are one. We talked about the fact that uh, the Bible tells in Genesis chapter 2, it gives us the definition of the word echad, one, right? Husband and wife are joined together and the two become echad, one. First time it's mentioned in the Bible holds the key to the definition. It's a principle of first mention anytime you're interpreting scripture. So when we come to Deuteronomy and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is Echad, it ought to be a clue for us, right? How many times have we read Genesis? Let us 
Let us create man in our own image. That throughout Scripture, the word used for God, Elohim, is plural. Everything shows that there's more to this one God, the one God of Israel, than what originally meets the eyes. And we see here that God would become flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Well, the Scripture goes on. Verse 15, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. He is going to grow up in poverty. What do we know about Jesus Christ? Did he grow up in poverty? Well, we know when his parents came to offer the sacrifice to redeem the firstborn son, which Leviticus talks about, which Exodus talks about, the Old Testament laid out, that every firstborn child had to be redeemed. They had to bring an offering. The rich, the wealthy would bring a bull. Middle class, they would bring sheep or a goat. What did the poor bring? Two turtle doves. And what did Jesus' parents bring? Two turtle doves. That's what they offered. Scripture says here, curds and honey. It's an idiom for the fact that he's going to grow up poor. He's not going to be wealthy. Apparently, he wasn't aware of the prosperity doctrine that if you're doing whatever God tells you to do, you're going to be wealthy, wealthy, healthy, and, and wise, right? You're never going to come into any trouble. or But that's not exactly how Scripture reads out for the Lord. He was going to be poor. And he was going to learn good and evil. He's going to be man of very man. This is so mind-boggling to us that Almighty God became fully man and fully God. How does that happen? Well, again, it's one of those things that... Not that I have to accept on faith. I can read it throughout the Bible, folks. It says it all throughout the Bible. But... The understanding of it. How does that work? How do you bring those two, those two natures together? Well, God did it. God did it. I'm going to believe it because that's what he said. That's what his word declares. Now, I can stand up here and tell you that there is a six-syllable word that describes what that is in theology. But it would just make no sense. So we're not going to. We're just going to say... That's what the word says. And if the word says it, I can, I can believe it. I don't got to know that some guy with a degree made up a word to tell us how that works. He goes on, verse 16. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, whenever we read prophecy, you need to understand that there are what's known as near and far fulfillments. This child, for a, this child that's born, this this son that's given, we're going to see Isaiah has a son. And God tells Isaiah what to name his son. He names one of his son, a remnant will return. How would you like to go to school with that name? It's better than the next one. He names his second son. Um, oh, I can only remember the second half of it. It'll come to me in a minute. He names his second son is, has something to do with uh, run for the booty. Not that kind. Like treasure. It's one son is speaking of a remnant returning. The second son is speaking, is speaking about the judgment that is coming. We'll get to it in a minute. It's, it'll be in here and it'll come back to me when I get to it. But so those kids that Isaiah has, that's a near fulfillment. That's a near picture. But we see scripture is talking here, looking ahead to Messiah. Now before Messiah, Isaiah's kids, they're going to point out and when his sons, before his sons, are able to understand God's judgment on the nations is going to come. 
See, that's the time frame that we're dealing with. Remember, when Isaiah is speaking this prophecy, he's talking to Judah. He's talking to people that really live, that are, that, and that word is really for them right there, and for us further down the line as well. Well, we take a look at verse 17. Now the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you, and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Now when you see that phrase, Ephraim is an idiom. It's, it's, the, it's the largest tribe of the ten tribes that were the northern kingdom of Israel. So he's going to say, hey, Assyria is coming and that judgment is coming upon the northern kingdom, upon Israel. Not one good king. In fact, the Bible tells in the book of Chronicles that the righteous and the faithful went to Judah and all those who desired to sin, they went up north to Israel. Israel didn't even worship in Jerusalem anymore at that time. Literally, the tribe of Dan erected golden calves, and they were back to golden calf worship. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can see the site where they raised up the golden calf in Dan and where they worshiped the golden calf. So because of this utter rejection of the Lord, the northern kingdom is going to face judgment from Assyria. Assyria is coming, and it's going to happen before Isaiah's sons uh, reach the age of, of fully understanding right and wrong. Well, he goes on verse 18. Now it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly. That is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt. And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come. And all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks. And on all the thorns and in all the pastures. So the Lord says, hey, I'm calling for all the little critters, all the bugs. They're coming. The, the armies of Assyria are coming. God's judgment is being poured out. When God's judgment is being poured out, or when God is speaking to us of His judgment, we have an opportunity at that moment to say, man, I'm off track. I need to get on track. I need to seek the Lord. I, I want to draw near Him. You have a chance to repent and turn. Right? I mean, Isaiah's kids aren't grown. The army's not there. But the people had already rejected the word of the Lord, don't you see? That's where it starts. That's why with Calvary Chapel, we put such an emphasis on a word. I know there's a lot of churches that that that's not as big a deal. But every time the nation of Israel falls away, every time someone ends up someplace they ought not to be, it begins with setting aside of God's word. Setting aside of the truth of of, of what God has to lay out for us. So we want to really dig in. Hey, this, it's all of the Word of God. All of it is there to help us grow, to learn, to, to make and establish our lives. Even as the Word was coming to those guys there, it still speaks to us today. It still wants to tell us. In verse 20, in the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor, with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, Will also and will also remove the beard. So one of the things the Assyrians would come, they would shave their captives, they would shave their head, which was very degrading in a Middle Eastern culture, to shave a head, to shave the beard. I mean, that's the, the most degrading thing, really, that you can do in their culture. He's saying that's what the Assyrians are coming. They're going to come down, they're going to shave your head, they're going to shave your legs, you're going to shave your face. I mean, the, literally the Assyrians were so cruel, they'd strip their captives naked and put hooks in their mouth. Like, not fish hooks, big old hooks. Like you would picking up a, a bale of hay. And they'd put that through their cheeks with a chain to the next guy. 
and take away however many thousands into captivity with the chains and the hooks naked being drugged back to the city. And getting back to the city was no great deal because when they got back to the city, they would play games with them. And they would slaughter them one by one by one by one. And what's the purpose? When God sends this judgment, what's, he, what's the lesson he's teaching us? <clears throat> because they had rejected the Lord and fallen into sin and chased after sin as hard as they could. What does sin bring? Everybody wants to look at things like judgment and look at God and think, God, why, Lord, you're awful cruel. What do you mean? I told you ahead of time. You have two paths to walk. If you walk the path on the right, you're going to die. If you walk the path on the left, you'll live. And the Lord said, choose which way you'll go. And the people choose right. And then we, 2,000 years later, look at the Lord and say, Lord, what are you doing? They're they're all going to be slaughtered. Well, yeah, I told them not to go that way. And that's the way they went. (laughs) And the Lord calls out to them and calls out to them and calls out to them. Reject, reject, reject. And the point is the time comes when God closes the door and judgment happens. And that, that happens over and over again. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. This nation will face judgment of God. Somewhere, sometime, it will face His judgment. Now, I don't look at every disaster. I turn on the news and I see an earthquake in Haiti, and I don't immediately leap to God's judgment and trying to wipe out the Haitians. It's not my job. My job... In, in this time that we're in now, how can I reach them? How can I touch them? How can I bring them a love of Jesus? How can I usher them in to his presence? Let God figure out the rest. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's going on. But I know that the Lord told us, didn't he? In Matthew, earthquakes, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, that those things were going to increase and increase and increase and increase. And that's what we see taking place in our world today. Just by studying Isaiah, we know if God says judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And we should consider, where am I? What am I doing with the time I have? I don't know how much time I have. I may have only a week. It'd be a shame to waste that whole week, wouldn't it? We want to, we want to redeem the time that the Lord has given us. Uh, he goes on then and says in verse 21, It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And so it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds for curds and honey everyone uh, will eat who is left in the land. Now the young cow and two sheep, again, is a Hebrew idiom that speaks of the fact that they're not going to have enough. The whole point is they're, they're not going to have enough food to feed the people that are left, those who don't get taken into captivity. The land's destroyed. The, the food is, is wiped out. In fact, those who are left behind after the Assyrians come through <coughs> to uh, the northern kingdom, they're going to be so poor and so destitute, later on the Assyrians are going to send back a bunch of the dregs of society. They're going to intermarry, and you will have a race called the Samaritans at the time of Christ that takes place through or from that judgment. And the beautiful thing of that story, we look at that and we see the Samaritans and they are off track and they're not really worshiping the Lord properly, but, but Jesus in John chapter 4 said, I have to go to Samaria. I have need to go to Samaria. And he goes and speaks to a woman at the well and what's the next thing that happens? Revival blows through Samaria. 
blows through. The Samaritans are getting saved right and left. In fact, Philip is moving through uh, the, the Samaritans. So many are getting saved. He's, he's going to start a new church. And the Lord says, no, Philip, I need you to go to Gaza. Talk to an Ethiopian eunuch. So God is constantly reaching out to these people. But when he lays out, judgment's coming. We got to realize the judgment has come. It will happen. And it will happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it's going to be briars and thorns. And with arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. What's he saying? What was once vineyard where men were walking through and picking grapes is going to be wild and, and folks are going to go in there and hunt. Because there's that, that the vineyards that were planted, all the crops that they had, they're just going to go back to the wild land. It's all going back to the way it was before they were there. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of the briars and the thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. So he's saying that literally what is now the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom is going to be obliterated. It's going to be totally wiped out. Now, do those people have an option? Those who want to follow the Lord, they could just pack up and go down to Judah, couldn't they? Sure they could, if they'll receive the word of the Lord. If they'll receive the word. But I'm sure in those days, just like today, men were saying, hey, brother, don't judge me. Don't judge me. It's, uh, that's not going to happen. You're just, you're just reading too much into it. You're reading into the text. That's not what's really going on. Well, he goes on. Same prophecy. Look how the word begins in chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's his other son, which means speed the spoil and hasten the booty. That's it. Speed the spoil, hasten the booty. What's he, he, can you imagine growing up in school? Yeah, how do you even get that mouthful out? Okay, speed the spoil, hasten the booty, come up here. I'm sure, speed the spoil and hasten your booty right up here. You're in trouble, you know, for whatever. Those things that were going on. Well, God tells Isaiah, this is Isaiah's son. God tells him to name him. One son, the remnant will return. The other son, speaking of judgment coming. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record. Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of, of Jebrekiah. And then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Now, the prophetess, that's his wife, Isaiah's wife. She conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before this child shall have knowledge to cry, My father or my mother. So before this child says, You know, Mama, Dada, like we see in the babies today, before he cries, My father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And so the Lord spoke again to me, saying this. Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that, that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son. So here's what's going on. The waters of Shiloh is, uh, again, an idiom that speaks of this, the, the city of Jerusalem. It speaks of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, and uh, the, the brook Kidron that's flowing around. So they're refusing uh, the waters of of the Shiloh of peace, and instead they're reaching out to Rezin uh, and his and in Ramalia's son. 
They're making a pact. Rather than going to God and saying, God, these guys are coming against us. What are we going to do? They're trying to build up a, a confederation of nations and take care of the battle themselves. So God says, you're rejecting me, you're rejecting my city, you're rejecting, you're rejecting who I am, and you're, you're making this confederation with these other nations to, to support. So many times, we can in our own lives, can't we, first look to how we can solve a problem ourselves before going to the Lord. It's so easy to do. It's one of the great things I enjoy every time I've gone on a mission trip to third world country. Because you get out there in the middle of nowhere and you don't have no other solution. You have a, a sick baby, a mama that don't have no milk, baby starving, and you don't have the ability to get to a store. You can't just go buy some. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to sit in a circle and you're going to pray. And you're going to watch God move. Because that's what you have to do. But here, you see, these people weren't looking to the Lord. They're making their own plans. Just like so often we can get caught up in our own lives. So he says, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. So he's, he's defining for us the river, probably speaking of the, the river Euphrates, but he points to this river that's going to flood over the, the nation is the king of Assyria, his army. He's coming. He's coming to, to, to wipe these things out. You're not turning to me. You don't want my help. You're going to look to other human means, and here comes the king of Assyria. He's coming to you. He will go up over all his channels and over all his banks. He will pass through Judah, and he will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel, O God with us. Isn't that interesting? So, the king of Assyria is going to pass through Judah, pass through the southern kingdom, go into the northern kingdom, water up to the neck, it's going to be a flood, it's going to be a hard time. Ultimately, you're going to see the king of Assyria coming against Judah, his name is Shennacherib, Hezekiah is going to be king, Shennacherib is going to like hold up this chain of the all the idols of all the gods he ever conquered, and he's going to say, all these other people trusted in their gods, and I own them all. Your God can't save you. Your God can't help you. There's, you pray. Go ahead and pray. But I'm coming and nothing can save you. And Hezekiah opens up that, that letter, that call before the Lord. He lays it out before him and says, Lord, look what this guy's saying about you. Look what he's doing. So the Lord sends his host of angels. No. One. One angel against 186,000 men. By the way, the battle was not very long. 186,000 dead. Angel didn't even have a scratch. So that's God's ability to deliver. We want to, when we face our own giants, our own battles in our life, how are we trying to solve those battles? Are we trying to solve those battles by... By doing a bunch of things or, or seeking advice or, or direction or help in all these other areas? Or are we laying them out before God and saying, Lord, you know, you're my defender. 
You're the one that can deliver far greater than any of these others. Well, that's what's going on here. And that's what the Lord is, is laying out before them. In verse 9, he continues and he says, Now, <clears throat> be shattered, O you peoples. Be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Go ahead, put on all your armor. Get all your armies together. But it's not going to do you any good. Because man does not stand or fall by the might of his arm or the power of his armies. Man stands or falls based on God's blessing upon his nation or upon his country. The United States was not a great country because we're just tougher and badder than everybody else was. The United States was a, was a great country because it was founded on godly principles. Amen. The textbook at one time, the only textbook in school was the Bible. That's what they read. That's what they studied. But the time came, right, where all that's washed away. Ah, we make ourselves great. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar said? We made ourselves strong. Look at this kingdom which I have built. That day will come. So he says, gird yourselves. You'll be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. The nation of Judah. They didn't have to be afraid of this, this confederacy of the northern kingdom in Syria. Northern kingdom and Syria joining together. They tried to get Israel, <coughs> excuse me, they tried to get Judah to join them. And Judah decided we're going to stand with the Lord. We're going to stand with the Lord. Northern kingdom, they get conquered by Assyria trying to do it on their own. Southern kingdom, they get delivered. Trusting in the Lord. So, in verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. The Lord said to Isaiah, Hey, learn a lesson. Learn from the example that's going on in these two kingdoms. One that can't do anything right. One that kind of stumbles and falls. Both are headed into captivity. One is going to go into captivity 65 years before the other one. Because they never want to turn to the Lord. They never want to, they never want to accept correction. And their captivity a hundred times worse than the others. So he says, Isaiah, don't walk according to this pattern. Don't, don't, don't follow the way of these people. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats or be troubled. God speaking to Isaiah, don't worry about what the Assyrians say. Don't be afraid of what your enemy, what can man do to me? Isn't that what Paul said? What can man, all man has the power to do is to take this life. And in the scheme of eternity, it's not all that great. That's all he can do. God has the ability to do so much more than that. The Bible says, rather fear the one who at your death has the power to send you to hell. Man, that's the one to fear. That's the one to stay focused. Focusing upon the Lord. The Lord of hosts. Him you shall hallow or make holy. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Because it was all about the fear of man. Now people get confused about this all the time. People try to say, I should be able to do whatever I want. And I'm not going to be afraid of what other people think of me. 
That's not necessarily the fear of man. The fear of man is when we are afraid to do what God is calling us to do because of what men think about what we're doing. We're afraid to be that witness. We're afraid to share. We're afraid to carry our Bibles. We're afraid to look outwardly like a Christian. We're afraid to do whatever those things are because of what men think. It's not about my rights or my freedom or or whether or not I should be able to do whatever I want to do and I don't care what anybody thinks about it. That's, That's just folly. We'd rather want to say, Lord, where are you directing me? And we have to know that just because God is directing me someplace doesn't mean that that's where he's directing everyone. Right? right. So if the Lord's calling me and, and I'm doing what God's calling me, then, then it's wrong for me to go to someone else, someone else, and say, hey, because God's telling me to do this, you have to do this too. Well, this is where God's calling me, and I'm going to live my life, please the Lord. I want to follow him. I'm going to go in his direction. Not the fear of men, but the fear of God. I want to please my Father in heaven. And if the Lord wants you to walk with me, then we're going in the same place. And if the Lord doesn't want you to walk with me, then you're going somewhere else. It's okay. We don't all have to be going in the same direction. So as he's laying this out, hey, fear the Lord, follow him. For he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? Jesus. To his own people, he came and his own received him not. They didn't, he's a stone of stumbling. The, the concept, even though scriptures teach it, the concept of the suffering servant, the Messiah dying for his people was foreign to them. They didn't focus on those scriptures. They liked the scriptures where he reigns forever and ever and ever. Hey, I like those too. But it's not yet. It's not yet. We have to take the whole counsel of God's word. So the Lord is laying out, hey, he's a sanctuary to some, but he's going to be a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling to the nation, both houses, Judah and Israel. North and south kingdoms. They're going to struggle with the whole concept. The Lord is saying it during Isaiah's prophesying. And many among them will stumble. And they will fall and be broken and be snared and taken. So bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. The one thing that is always going to set apart God's people will be their desire for or love of the Word of God. Bind up the testimony. That's, at that time, the Old Testament. What they had to that point, to the point of Isaiah, bind it up, put it in a book, seal it, keep it for my people, for those who are following me, my disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple was someone that not only received the teaching, but wanted to emulate the life of. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means we want to emulate his life. Being a disciple means we want to follow his teachings so close that we do what he does. That's the point. Well, he goes on. 
And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Hey, God's turning his face. He's closing his eyes to the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob, the nation of Israel, the whole thing, both north and south. They're both off track from following the Lord. They're not on on task with where they need to be. But look, Isaiah's saying, hey, I'm going to hope in the Lord. Everything's falling apart. The nation that he loved is falling, crumbling, going to dust. People are going to die. People are going to spend their entire lives in slavery. That's about as bad as it gets. I mean, I don't know what, what's going on in your lives, necessarily what's happening with you. We may come to places where we're struggling with things in our life and we're, we're tripping over the whys and the wherefores, but Isaiah made a choice, and it is a choice, to say, I will hope in the Lord. Where else are you going to hope? Who else holds the, the keys to life and the e- eternal life and the answers? He says, hey, I'm going to hope in him. Even though God has turned his face away from us, even though all these horrible things are happening, my hope is still in him. And that's where Isaiah was. That's where we need to be, our hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah saying, hey, my kids are signs. I named them according to what the Lord told me. One, a remnant will return. The other, speaking of judgment coming. We're for signs. My life is a, is a sign for the people of Israel. And so Isaiah calling it out. Hey, this is what I'm about. This is where my hope is. Me and the children whom you have given me. And when they say to you, look at verse 19, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Hey, the Lord's laying out for them. Why do you want to run to all the knuckleheads of the world? You know, the... Psychic Friends Network. What a... Really? You know they went bankrupt, right? You heard the joke? I guess they couldn't see that coming. We can call the Psychic Friends Network, but apparently they can't even take care of themselves. Maybe that's where we should go for our advice. Seeking the, the wizards, those who are wrapped up in occultic practices. Listen, the scripture lays out for us that those are things we need to be very, very careful about. All of that stuff. I know we want to experience the freedom that we have in Christ. But keep in mind, in that freedom that we have in Christ, we don't want anything that's going to put us in bondage, anything that's going to slow down our walk with the Lord, anything that's going to hold us back. So if there are books or movies or things that... that because you, you can get really wrapped up in that stuff. I was a kid too. I remember. I was a little dungeon and dragon headed kid running around with a silly little oct- multi-sided dice. It's easier to say that. Doing, doing all those things. Now, I'm not necessarily uh, going to say that, that it's utterly and completely and all evil, but it certainly is a weight. Something to hold you back. Something to slow you down. And there's a lot of those things today. The Bible talks about it in several places. 
mentioning, talking about wizards and how important it is that we just withdraw from that stuff. He said when the children of Israel would come into Canaan, they would find wizards and witches and fortune tellers and mediums and all those things. And man, TV is covered with that stuff today. You turn on the TV in 30 seconds or less, you're going to see a commercial about, you know, some psychic, weird, you know, hey, I'm not saying that stuff ain't real. I'm saying that's not stuff to be messing around with or playing around with. I need to put my energy into serving the Lord. Don't seek help from that mumbo jumbo. Seek him. Seek Jesus. Don't be afraid to trust in him. So often we're so afraid that I'm going to put my trust in God and he's not going to show up. And now what? Then what do I have left? So it's easier for me to trust some other way. Man, don't do that. Don't be afraid. God is up to the task. Trust him and he'll carry you through. Well, scripture goes on. Um, Verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word... It is because there is no light in them. See what he's saying? Listen, don't go to the wizards, don't go to the witches, don't go to the mediums. If they're not focused on the word of God, the law and the testimony, God's word, if they're not speaking his word, there is no light in them. I don't care what kind of psychiatrist you want to go to. I don't care how many little letters he's got at the end of his name. If he is not, when he is working with you, working with the word of God to guide and direct his advice, then the Lord says there's no light in him. And you're receiving guidance from darkness. And it's, it's I can't even tell you how many times folks have come to Kathy and I. Now, Kathy and I are not uh, licensed counselors. We just do biblical counseling through the word of God. Uh, I'm not saying there's not a place for folks that are licensed and that have... Uh, studied and, and done all those things. I'm just saying the Word of God needs to be the center, not all the other stuff. Well, Kathy and I have sat down with people who have been going to counseling out in the world only to have the world tell them, well, you should get divorced. This is never going to work. Really? And on your vast experience, or they tell them, we've had an experience where they've told couples, well, you need to go find yourself. Oh, is that the answer? If everybody's out finding themselves, what's the rest of us supposed to do? How's anything happen? I'm all focused on me. I got me-itis. I think we take care of ourselves good enough. I have yet to meet anyone who is starving to death because they don't take care of themselves. (coughs) So, I take care of myself. You can tell. I don't miss too many meals. That's all right. I don't need to be focused on me. I need to be focused on my spouse. And vice versa. So when we seek counsel, we need to understand that counsel needs to have a foundation in the word of God. Otherwise, it's just darkness. He says that because there's no light in them, they will pass through it hard pressed and hungry. And it will happen when they are hungry <clears throat> that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they will look on the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. See, you look at these two verses and close your eyes and picture the tribulation. Because that's a pretty good picture of what it's going to be like. In 
Revelation chapter 6, when that global earthquake takes place, says men are going to hide in the caves, stand under the rocks, and ask for the rocks to fall upon themselves, and curse their God and king. They're going to curse. Well, that's going to happen too with these nations. When the near fulfillment, when the Assyrians come, and they're being conquered, they're going to curse God. Oh, why you let this happen to us? They ignore the fact that they rejected all of the Lord's attempts. Until the day of judgment comes. And when that day of judgment comes, well, now it's too late. Now it's too late. So, he goes on, chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now you might not recognize that verse, but if you do much reading in the book of Matthew, Matthew is going to say that this verse is talking about the Messiah. He's coming to the Galilee, to Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are references to Nazareth, Capernaum, Galilee, the areas where Jesus ministered the most. He's, he's laying it, this out, that, that here comes your Messiah. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who's the great light they're talking about? The light of the world, Jesus Christ. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The coming of the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King, the hope of Israel. Even in the midst of the judgment, the Lord lays out, here's your hope, Messiah's coming. Here's the hope, Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming, and with him he will bring light. And that light will be the light of men to lead them into an understanding with him. Now he goes on in verse 3. So you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. And the staff on his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor. As in the day of Midian. Well that that points to Gideon. Gideon and the, the real 300. A little while ago they made a movie about a bunch of Greeks. But they didn't hold nothing on Gideon. Gideon, who was, was facing this huge, this huge insurmountable army, the Midianites, coming against him, and he puts out a call. He calls all the children of Israel to go to battle with him. You remember how many came? <laughs> they get to 300. 30,000 are going to come. And he's going to say to them, the Lord says, Gideon, you have too many. And Gideon says, Lord, they still have more. No, you have too many, Gideon. They're going to think they did it themselves. Tell everyone who's afraid to go home. So, told everyone who was afraid to go home. Boop, 10,000 people left. 20,000 people go home. You're down to 10,000. The Lord says to Gideon, Gideon, you got too many people. And the Lord whittles Gideon's army down till there was 300 left. And then 300 men, he put through special training, taught them how to do all this kung fu with swords and all this crazy stuff, so that when they went into battle, they'd just whoop them. 
Oh, oh, did I mention that they didn't have swords? He sent them, those 300 guys, into battle with a clay pot and a torch. The torch in the clay pot. And they go sneaking into the camp of the Midianites. I would be sneaking too. (laughs) And they bust open them clay pots and they let that light shine and then they blow on these trumpets. The sword of Gideon and of the Lord. And the Midianites are so confused they all jump up and kill each other. Well, that's how God does things. When the Lord delivers... None of those guys holding the pot and the torches were going to go brag about all the things that they did in that battle. It was all about what God did. That's what the Lord is, is alluding to here. Hey, how he saved them from the oppressors, the taskmasters. Remember the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from that noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. Again, we got over and over again throughout Scripture, we're going to see indications of the Battle of Armageddon and the Valley of Jezreel, which is, um, have to look, I want to say around 180 miles long. Um, and it's going to flow, the, the Bible tells us, four feet high to the horse's bridle with blood. That's a lot of blood, by the way. And that it's Jesus alone who fights that battle. And it talks about his vesture being dipped in blood. And that he's going to come walking out of the battle. And people are going to look at him as though he'd been trampling the wine press of the fierceness of God's wrath. Like when you trample grapes and you get grape juice all over you, that's how he's going to look. And they're going to say, where have you been? And he's going to say, I've been trampling the wine press of the fierceness of God's wrath. The Lord executing judgment in that day. And so... This is what the Lord's laying out for us. Hey, this is how God delivers. And then look at verse 6. Kind of comes at us out of nowhere, doesn't it? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. In that phrase, you have both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Unto us a child is born speaks of his humanity. Unto us a son is given speaks to the nature being the Son of God, right? Son of man, his nature is man. Son of God, his nature is God. God, a very God, man, a very man, humanity and divinity. And, a, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, folks, we quote this verse often, especially uh, around Christmas time and other holidays, when we look at it, you need to realize it's not finished. It's not fulfilled. The government's not on his shoulders yet. The angel promised his mother Mary that Jesus would sit on the throne of David. In case you haven't noticed, he hadn't done that yet. And he will rule forever. He will rule in a thousand year millennial reign, but his reign will never end. The only thing that ends at the end of the millennium is all those who reject God at the end. But those who love him go forward with him. He's still our king. He still will rule and reign. So the government will be upon his shoulder. This is yet to take place. And his name will be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Let's think about that for a minute. Just hold your fingers here and go back to me to the darkest time of Israel's history and the book of Judges. 
So all you got to do is turn left and keep turning left. If you get to Joshua, turn right. So we come to Judges chapter 13. Now, unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. We know who that's talking about, don't we? It's talking about Jesus, right? And his name will be called Wonderful. When was he ever called Wonderful? Let's take a look. Judges chapter 13. Verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said, Look, the man who came to me the other day, he has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to my woman? And he answered, What did he say? I am. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? I am. Manoah said, Now, let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life in his work? Now, here we have Manoah. His, his wife has already received the promise that she's finally going to have a son. You know what that son's name's going to be? Samson. Samson. So Samson's mom and dad. And the dad's saying, well, what, what's, what's going to be the rule of this boy's life? How's, he, how's things going to work in his life? What's going to go on? So <clears throat> Manoah says, what will be the rule of his life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, now you've got to understand that phrase, the angel of the capital L-O-R-D. There's lots of angels of the L little O-R-D. But there is only one angel of the Lord. And you need to picture it like this. There's only one angel of Jehovah, angel of Yahweh. Who is the angel of Yahweh? Who is the messenger of God? God in the past spoke to us by the prophets as in these last days spoken to us how? By his son. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. When God wants to relate to his creation, he speaks to his creation through the word. God the word is Jesus Christ. He is the angel of Jehovah. Not Michael. He's not an angel who became God. He is God of very God. Angel simply means messenger. Right? The messenger, the one sent to be seen. Can anyone see the Father? The Bible's very clear. No man can see the Father and live. So when man sees God, who do they see? Jesus Christ. Still God. This is one of the terms that Jesus goes by in the Old Testament. The angel of the capital L-O-R-D. The, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of Yahweh, the Yahweh, the name of God. So the angel of the Lord said... Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I command her, let her observe. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it, to the Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. See, when the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord and the Lord, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't differentiate. 
When they were speaking of the angel of the Lord, they're talking about God, Almighty God. We'll see that in a moment. And when they're talking about the, the, the covenantial name of God, Yahweh, YHVH, they're talking about God, a very God, when they're, when they're laying those things out. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name that when your words come to pass we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, the story goes on. So Manoah took a young goat with a grain offering and offered it on a rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that it was the angel of the Lord, and he said, we shall surely die. Why? Because we have seen God. Whole counsel of God's Word, folks. There's... It it takes someone not willing to read the plain English of the text to mess it up. The angel of the Lord is God. Is God. His wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering. The angel of the Lord accepted the burnt offering. He went up in the fire as that offering was taken up into heaven. And Manoah and his wife declared him to be God. Almighty called wonderful so who is the child who is the son whose name is wonderful who is the angel of god who is god of very god jesus christ that's what the word declares he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father folks it's hard to get away from that this is speaking of jesus christ that he is one with the father didn't he say I and the Father are one. That He is one. That there is more to God than we can wrap our little pea brains around. There are not three gods. There's one God. Three distinct persons in one God. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, how does that work? Well, you know what? People smarter than me are having a hard time with it. Why should I be any different? But I read it. I believe it. It's true. It's true. Well, as we look, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even to forever. Hey, Jesus, when he gets on the throne, he's not ever coming off. He will reign forever and ever the zeal of the lord of hosts will perform this now we'll stop there tonight we'll continue on next time but as we look at that god's word and we go through isaiah man and we're coming into some kingdom prophecies in another couple of chapters exciting 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 words that god has but we need to realize as we look at that, that those are still words for us today sure they applied to the people they were spoken to at the time of Isaiah. But that's not all they were for. 
They're there for our admonition. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All the things that happened to the children of Israel are there as examples to us that we might learn, that we might do it right and not lose focus, not lose what, what God is accomplishing, doing, guiding, directing, moving through our lives. So as we look at that, we want to we apply the words of the prophecy of this book because it was the prophecy of this book that the nation of Israel rejected when they rejected their Messiah. Over and over again, he'll tell them. But at some point, guys, at some point, the Word of God just became words on a page. And that can happen to us too. It's just this book that sits next to my bed or sits on the end table. It's just words and stories and it's not living. It's not powerful. It's not sharper than any two-edged sword. It just becomes word on a page. And now, now we're ripe. Now we're ripe for the picking. Rather, we want to take thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's what God does when we apply his word properly to our life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We come before you and we... We lay this time before you, Lord God, we ask that you would, <clears throat> Father, just move by your spirit tonight as we study your word, as we spend some time in, in worship, that we might just be quiet before you. Father, that you would indeed be God with us. Lord, we thank you for the truth, who you are, the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would guide and direct us, that you would lead us, by the power of your word, that we would keep our eyes upon you. And just like Isaiah said, even though my world is upside down, I will hope in you. Lord God, that is indeed where we're at. Father, we want to hope in you. We lay this evening before you, and we ask that you might just move in, through, and among us in a mighty way. We lay it before you in Jesus' name. Amen.